There's really no way around some arguments if the arguments just want to happen. One of the producers of our radio show, This American Life, was at this conference recently, and this guy named Eric Molinsky told her about this strangely and unexpectedly fierce argument that he had gotten into with a good friend of his. It was his cousin, in fact. And the whole thing started with no warning at all. Like he told Nancy, they were happily chatting away in a nice warm cafe. Everything was like comfort food, comfort seats. And, you know, we're like, we were so, we were so comfortable. I'm getting tense already just hearing about it. <laughs> we were so comfortable. It was one of the things where you, you, you actually could hardly touch the table. You actually had to sit up in your giant lounge chair to, to get the soup uh, on the little table. The comfy soup. The comfy soup, yeah. So we're talking along, and I remember I, somehow I brought this up about corporate tax loopholes. And then all, and then she was like, "Well, uh, first she said, well, let, let, let's just let, let me just play the devil's advocate here. You know, not not that I'm defending corporations, but you know, I mean, don't you think that if if you're gonna you know make them pay taxes, they're just gonna pick up and leave and go to another state, you know?" And then she kept saying, "Like, well, not not that I'm defending corporations." Um, and we kind of got deeper and deeper into this, and and she sort of eventually stopped apologizing for defending corporations and really was going after this idea that you know. It was just irresponsible. It was typical kind of liberal. Um, knee-jerk. Knee-jerk, you know. Anti-business. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is the way the world works. This is the way the world goes around. Money, money, money. You know, I, I, I ended up being grandstanding. You know, this goes into the highways. This goes into, you know, health care for everybody. And in the middle of this tirade, in the back of his mind, Eric was thinking... Why are we getting so heated up over this, both of us? And then something occurred to Eric. I think the way that I said it was, um, you know, I have to admit, I really don't know a lot about this issue. Or, or I, I didn't really know a lot about it until my ex-girlfriend explained it to me. When, when you said that, wh- what did your cousin say? Well, she paused. <laughs> and she said, well, you know... To be honest, I didn't really know a lot about this issue either. But I had an ex-boyfriend who educated me on it. Eric's ex-girlfriend was a political activist with a special focus on corporate tax loopholes. His cousin Mara's ex-boyfriend worked in hedge funds. And so we just stopped for a second. It was interesting because that was kind of the end of the argument. And that's when I I said to her, I think that my ex-girlfriend just got into a huge 20-minute argument with your ex-boyfriend. You know, when you fall in love with somebody, it's like they have an open path straight to your heart. And without you even realizing it, other things can just ride in on that path. Political ideas, favorite bands, favorite writers, pet peeves. And where those things are concerned, you basically just become the person you love. You're like their proxy. In my own life, um, my own opinions about television are so thoroughly shaped by my wife's opinions that a coworker recently told me that sometimes she wished that she could just skip the middleman and talk straight to my wife. But I think that we don't just become proxies for the people that we love. It happens with friends. It happens in business settings. It happens in politics. And when it happens, things can get very confusing. When you really step in for somebody else, substitute yourself for somebody else, it can be hard to tell if you're doing the right thing at all. You know? If you're doing what they would want or what you want. Well, from Chicago Public Radio, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today's show, 
by proxy. Stories of people turning into proxies for other people. Sometimes by choice. Sometimes they just find that it's happened to them without them even noticing. Like one of our show today, I'm the decider. What do you do when a friend asks you to make a decision that she probably should be making for herself? Well, Davy Rothbard found himself in that very position. Act two, killing the messengers. What it's like to be the proxy for the least popular guys in town when the town is Mosul and the guys are the U.S. Army. Act three, redemption by proxy. A teenage girl and a message from beyond the grave. Stay with us. Aquan, I'm the decider. You know, there are all kinds of situations where we step in as reluctant proxies, as a favor for friends or family, taking over some chore they don't want to do, taking their kids or their pets off their hands for a while, doing something because it's the right thing to do and nobody else is stepping in. That's what happened to Davy Rothbard, more or less. So Cassandra is this childhood friend of mine who moved away when she was maybe 13 to Chicago, then to California, then Pensacola, Florida, I think she had kind of a tough go of things growing up. She never really knew her dad, and her and her mom and brother kept moving around a ton. A couple times she called me crying when she had to pull up stakes again. We wrote a lot of letters back and forth, and when we were 20, we traveled around Eastern Europe together, just as friends. Every couple of years since, she'll surface in my life by way of a middle-of-the-night phone call. She'll be in the midst of a crisis and desperate for my advice maybe about problems at her work or with school or with a boyfriend, her little brother in trouble with the law. She'll say things to me like, you're so sensible. You understand how things work. You're so smart about things. Not just smart, but wise. That's kind of hard to resist. So after she calls me with a problem, for a week or so we talk every day, just going through it all. And by then we've figured out a good approach. Say she's got a manager at work who's overly flirtatious, making her uncomfortable. I kind of like ask her a bunch of questions. What's he doing exactly? How often? Have other people witnessed his behavior? Who's his supervisor? After talking a bunch, we make a plan for some kind of decisive action. She feels a whole lot better, and I, in turn, feel sensible, knowledgeable, and smart. Not just smart, but wise. Then a few years ago, she called me freaking out. She had a new kind of crisis. Not like anything I'd ever dealt with before. She was pregnant. Almost three months pregnant. The dad was her sometimes boyfriend, a hippie wanderer type named Rainbow Bear. She was living in Santa Barbara, she said, without any close friends around, no one to really turn to, and she was really upset and confused, torn up about whether she should have this baby or not. Rainbow Bear wasn't involved. She said to me, Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. So I did pretty much what any sensible and smart person would do in that situation. I told her I couldn't make the decision for her, but that I would do everything I could to equip her with as much information as possible so that she'd be able to decide what to do on her own. Then I got to work. I knew one friend who'd had an abortion and had always been haunted by it, and another friend who'd had an abortion and, while sad about it, of course, really believed it had been the right thing to do. I also found a woman who'd given her baby up for adoption and another who'd kept her baby and was a single mom. I got them all to agree to talk to Cassandra. But she was really shy and too upset to reach out to strangers. Those are your friends, not mine, she said. I feel weird calling them. 
So, okay, I changed my plan and talked at great length to each of these women myself, then relayed their stories to Cassandra, careful to present them in a balanced way so it wouldn't seem like I was favoring one option over another. I'd even gone so far as to talk to a couple of friends in med school to gauge the medical risks of a later first-term abortion. Relatively safe, it turns out. At the end of all this, Cassandra was only more confused and overwhelmed. Please, she begged me, tell me what you think I should do. And that's where I should have said, look, nobody can tell you what to do in this situation. Of course this is agonizing, but only you can know what path to take. And whatever you choose, that would be the right decision. But that's not what I said. Cassandra was barely getting by on her own as a cashier at a health food store. No medical insurance, shady roommates, a shaky lease, a boyfriend named Rainbow Bear. Um, Cassandra, I said, I know being a mother appeals to you, but you're still so young. Maybe this isn't the right time. Down the road, you'll have the chance to have a baby with a guy who's going to be there to raise the child with you. It's just going to be so hard on your own. I think you should wait. I think you should wait. Sort of a pleasant euphemism for kill the fetus. Cassandra sounded sad, but she said I was right, and that now she knew what to do. She kept thanking me for being such a kind and generous friend. We talked maybe once more the next day, and then she disappeared again. For months afterwards, I felt weird about what I'd done. I did think it was probably for the best, but what if something went wrong and she was never able to have children again? Or what if she never found the right guy and this had been her one chance to be a mother? I think it would have felt equally weird if I'd told her to have the baby too. I just felt like I shouldn't have been the one to decide. Three years later, I'm living in Chicago and I get a call. It's Cassandra. She's in the Chicago suburbs staying with her grandfather. She invites me out to visit her, and we agree to meet the next day at the playground across from her grandfather's house. I pull up, hop out of my car, and there's Cassandra, waving to me from beside the swing set. Then I see, tearing through the grass toward me, a little blonde two-year-old boy. It's Cassandra's son, of course. She had the baby after all. And he's got the same name as my favorite basketball player in the world, Isaiah, like Isaiah Thomas. Davy, meet Isaiah Bear. My eyes got all watery. And Isaiah, he's like the most incredible, joyous, dazzlingly intelligent two-year-old boy I've ever met in my life. I swear this is true. That night we brought him to my friend Nicole's house. I was couch surfing at her place at the time. And when we introduced him to 12 people in a circle, he went right back around and knew every single person's name. Incredible. At the same time, as amazing as Isaiah was, Cassandra was struggling. Rainbow Bear had rumbled off, and she'd been bouncing from town to town, first staying with his parents, then an old boyfriend or two, and now her grandfather. But that was a bad situation, too. She had to get out of there. And here I was. I felt pretty guilty for having pressed Cassandra to have an abortion. Somehow I thought, if I could help his path toward a good life... I could make up for that little part where I'd suggested he'd be exterminated. So I jumped back in again. I took over. And I came up with a plan. I'd move back home to my folks' house in Michigan for a little while, bring Cassandra and Isaiah to live with us for a couple months in Ann Arbor. 
And Cassandra said that's what she wanted. Stay with my folks, get a job, work and save money, then move into her own place and raise her son. I was really excited about the whole thing. I truly wanted to help Cassandra, you know. She's been a lifelong friend. And I also liked the idea of being altruistic and the idea that this other girl I was chasing after at the time might see me as altruistic. And it occurred to me that living with Cassandra and Isaiah, it would be kind of like having my own kid. At the basketball court where I'd played ball in Chicago, there was this one guy who always brought his two kids with him, like two and four years old. Between games, he'd mess around with them for a couple minutes or shout at them for wandering too far away. I liked the idea of showing up at the court in Ann Arbor with Isaiah and being able to cuff him, roughhouse with him, and teach him how to shoot. Being a dad or acting as a dad makes you feel more like a man, makes you seem a little more tough and rugged. Having Cassandra and Isaiah in Ann Arbor was great. My mom got a little kiddie pool for the backyard, and Sandra and Isaiah spent all afternoon and evening back there. Cassandra made soup and all kinds of complicated vegan foods in the kitchen and washed her clothes with a hose and hung them up to dry on the old rusty playground equipment out back. We had a basketball hoop in our driveway, and me and my friends started showing young Isaiah how to shoot. We called him Zeke, after Isaiah Thomas's nickname. And the kid, Zeke, had the sunniest disposition, and he was a natural athlete. I started in pretty quickly trying to find Sandra a job. Between me, my friends, and my parents, we found a few solid leads. Solid enough that all she had to do was show up for an interview and the job would be hers. These weren't dream jobs, but they were decent-paying jobs, like working the register at a Birkenstock store or taking phone orders at Bell's Pizza. But every time we had an interview set up for Sandra, she managed to miss it. She got lost on her way there, or Isaiah was nursing and she couldn't leave him right then, those kinds of things. Finally, one day, I drove her to an interview. Though she had her own car, I just wanted to make sure she actually went to it. She got the job, a receptionist at a new AG-type salon. They asked her to start work the next morning. I drew a careful map with clear directions so she'd have no trouble finding the place and even set her alarm clock to wake her in plenty of time to get to work. My plan was for me and my dad to split the day looking after Zeke, and then on days we weren't around, Zeke could go to daycare. But the next morning I wake up and Cassandra's just laying in bed playing with Zeke. I charged into the room. Oh my God, you're two hours late for work and it's your first day. And she's just like, oh, I decided not to go. If you knew Cassandra, you'd be shocked when I told you that she never smoked pot because she just had that total glassy, dreamlike air to her, completely unperturbed by real-world situations. In a lot of ways, she was like a child became so frustrating. Cassandra kept putting all of her decisions in my hands, but then she wasn't actually doing any of the things I was telling her to do. And I finally realized things that were easy for me, like showing up for work on time, showing up at all, were not easy for her. It was clear she wasn't going to get a job. And I don't want to be too critical. Taking care of her two-year-old, she was exhausted all the time. And really, I began to understand just how difficult it would be to raise a kid on your own. I mean, that stuff is relentless when you have two parents, but all alone, it's brutal. Even for me, the allure of playing dad began to wane. I was stuck babysitting a lot. When I tried to take Zeke with me to the schoolyard where I always played basketball, he didn't understand that he couldn't come out on the court when the grown-ups were playing, and I had to leave the game and take him home. And most days, I'd be at home trying to get some kind of important work done on the computer and play Hungry Hungry Hippo at the same time. Suddenly, I felt desperately like I needed an out. My parents recognized that Cassandra had no intention of finding her own housing, 
and they were ready to have their house back, and I was ready to have my life back. My stab at playing dad revealed itself for what it was all along, a theme park ride, a novelty, a selfish gift. So, naturally, I hatched a new, even more ill-conceived plan and tried to hook Cassandra up with my friend Brandy so he could take her off my hands. I knew Brandy was into Cassandra, and he was great with Isaiah, so I kept making plans for all of us to hang out together, then ducking out at the last minute. Brandy took over all the dad responsibilities I'd felt saddled with, and Cassandra enjoyed Brandy's kindness and attention. There was actually a momentary romantic spark, and I saw everything unspooling beautifully. But Brandy was living at home with his own mom, and they were barely making ends meet as it was. Brandy's mom quashed everything really quick. There's no way they're moving in here with us. One of the lowest moments of this whole strange saga was when Cassandra said to me one day, not angrily, just plainly, If you want me to leave, I'll leave. You don't have to try to pedal me off on your friends. There's a TV show from the 80s that I saw only a handful of times, but always really loved, called Quantum Leap. Remember that? Each week's episode would revolve around a different person caught up in a complicated and difficult situation that they couldn't fix. And the star of the show, Scott Bakula, would actually be zapped into that person's body, become that person, and he would make things right. It's one thing to get involved in other people's problems and do your best to help them. But man, it'd be a whole nother thing if you could actually inhabit their body and fix everything up yourself. Then you could really help some people. I'm sure in the end it's not the best way to do it, At the very least, it's kind of a bullying way to look at other people's problems. But I guess that's me, wanting the ball in my hands, wanting to run the show. Not long after Cassandra told me I didn't need to pedal her on to my friends, she decided that she and Zeke would pack up and leave town. She had been talking to Zeke's dad, Rainbow Bear, on the phone, and they were going to try to get back together. Rainbow had moved to Hawaii, and Sandra and Isaiah were headed there to meet up with him. It was one of those things where it seemed clearly kind of sad and hopeless, and at the same time, I didn't want to talk her out of it because it meant they'd be gone, and I could resume my own directionless life. Cassandra was nothing but sweet and totally appreciative of what me and my family had done for her, but I felt miserable. I worked with little Zeke one last afternoon on his perimeter shooting, then watched him and Cassandra drive away, and then I cried. Davey Rothbart in Ann Arbor. His book of stories is The Lone Surfer of Montana, Kansas. He's also the creator of Found Magazine, which is at foundmagazine.com. I don't know what I can say 
Coming up, so your country's been occupied by a foreign army, and you work for that army. Who should you really be loyal to? A guy caught in the middle of that problem in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, by proxy, stories of people substituting themselves for other people and the difficulties that can create. We arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Killing the Messengers. Being a proxy can get you murdered. Bassam grew up in Iraq, trained to be an English interpreter. And when the U.S. Army arrived, he got a chance to try out his language skills on actual native English speakers for the first time in his life. Iraq had been cut off from the world for so long, he says, that generations of English teachers were not able to travel outside the country and speak English. So his English had all kinds of mistakes in it as a result. But he spoke well enough that the Americans offered him a job as an interpreter, and it was a job that he really loved. He made decent money, and he felt like he was helping rebuild his country and bring it into the modern world. But translating for the U.S. Army meant being a proxy for the Americans when he was talking to Iraqis, and being a proxy for the Iraqis when he was talking to American soldiers which put him in a lot of tough situations. A quick example, um, sometimes Iraqi policemen and police trainees would be standing right next to the Americans and then badmouth them in Arabic. Bassam uh, wouldn't translate what they said. That would just make trouble. Instead, he would warn the police in Arabic they should watch their mouths, that some translators would, in fact, tell the Americans what they were saying, word for word, and there was no predicting how the Americans would react. Sometimes the Iraqi police would reply that Bassam was taking the American side. It was their country. And we are talking about Iraqi policemen. They were an authority in Iraq. And it's hard to be in the middle between American soldiers. I, I don't want to say that American soldiers are arrogant or something like that. But it is an army kind of life. And those policemen are being very sensitive because, well, their country is occupied their army is being defeated, and now they have to receive orders, instructions from their former enemy. So you have to be very sensitive in order to create a kind of, let's say, a friendship, a kind of common understanding between the two parties. And, 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 so, and so give me an example of an order, the way the Americans would say it, and what you would have to do to it in order to get it across. Yeah, like for example, I used to have a boss who's a a lieutenant colonel in the the American army who was very keen on the hygiene of Iraqi policemen, 
or on the cleanness of their police station. And we are in Iraq. We have the tradition to smoke like everywhere. We can smoke in any place we want. And that uh, army commander was very keen on seeing Iraqi policemen, for example, throwing the butts of their cigarettes on the ground. And he used to follow them one by one, telling them to pick the cigarette butts from the ground and put it in an ash tree or in a trash uh, basket where it belongs. And sometimes uh, a form of a military order like that would be interpreted in a bad way, like the Iraqi policeman will think, okay, it is my police station, it is my country, I can do whatever I want, I can throw my cigarettes, but whenever I want or wherever I want. So when you interpret uh, a situation like that, where there you have an American commander telling an Iraqi policeman, hey, don't throw uh, the butt of your cigarettes on the ground, it would have to be interpreted in another way. Like, well, do you think that there is somebody who's going to come and clean that after you. So please be very kind. And when you smoke, please be aware that you have to throw your cigarette spot in a place where it reflects a good image of your police station. You don't want the American to think that you are dirty or something. And this is how we interpret, uh, interpret situations. Bassem, why, why, why not just turn to the Americans and say, we'll let these men be, this is our culture here, we throw the cigarettes, what difference does it make? Well, uh, because I, I have this kind of belief that uh, if we listen to those people, to, other, to the Americans, things would be better for us. We need this kind of education. And it just starts from small things, and it grows up to the big things. If the American soldier or commander has the time to teach you where to throw your cigarette, then he would be teaching you how to treat your prisoners. He would be teaching you how to have, uh, uh, like, a professional ethics. He would be teaching you how to, uh, to, to do much more important things. And also, you're working for him. It's your job to, to say what he wants you to say. And this is one part of the story, yeah. Yeah. The more, you, the more you tell these stories, the more it's clear that your job is so much more than translating the words. Well, well, there is a situation where I was with a new boss. We have received, like, somebody who is a, uh, a major in the Army who was in charge of our unit. And I had to lie to him in, in one incident because we went to the, uh, to the uh, city hall in the city of Mosul trying to do some security assessment of the building itself. And there were about 150 or more uh, Iraqi protesters who are protesting against the Americans in that point. And our new commander has said, well, we have to do it no matter what. We have to do that assessment today. And, uh, and I told him, but there are protesters who can be provoked, provoked by our existence, like we with our Humvees and with our with our weapons and stuff like that. And he said, no, it doesn't matter. And I was talking to an Iraqi policeman who said, well, uh, you can do the assessment now. He's a, a high-ranking officer in the, in the police. But, uh, and we, we can manage with the, with the protester if they got any kind of action or if they start to throw stones or something like that. And the way I translated it to the American officer, I told him that the Iraqi officer saying that 
we should leave right now because we don't want to provoke other protesters. We don't want to use their weapons against them today. And the, Amer the American officer thought about it and said, yeah, let's do the assessment in another day. In a situation like that, the, the Iraqi officer did not have the right judgment about the situation because those protesters were very angry. And the American officer has his schedule, has his plan. He wants to do the, the, building, uh, the building security assessment. But I was the only one who can see a group of Iraqi people who were angry and who can start throwing stones, and somebody can get in the middle of them with a, with a weapon or with a rifle and start shooting, and will, the Americans and the Iraqi police will shoot back and there will be casualties, which is something that can be avoided. In a situation like that, I thought, it is the only lie that I lied in my life that I, I felt very comfortable about. When you studied to be an interpreter, did, did they tell you to be completely neutral? Yep. I know that. But we have not received any kind of study, any kind of uh, academic study on how to be a translator in a worse situation, in a battlefield. If yeah. you know what I mean, well, we were not. <laughs> well, I know, I know. Well, what's interesting about these examples um, is that is that it's not just that you're just interpreting what's going on, but in a sense, you're taking over for who's ever in charge. Do you know what I mean? With the protesters, you, mm -hmm. you're you're saying that you know better what's going to get everyone through the situation, and you're actually mm -hmm. taking over. Yeah, because if something wrong happened where the Americans, whom I work with, have to shoot some people who are demonstrating, and people got killed, or other people got wounded, or an American a friend of mine got killed or got wounded. I will never forgive myself because I didn't take an action, because I didn't take a stand, because I have to do something. We have to avoid tension, if you know what I mean. The army unit that Bassam was working with trained Iraqi police. This meant that Bassam spent a lot of time translating American police manuals into Arabic and translating lectures about police procedure. And as an Iraqi who had always been afraid of the police under Saddam, when police seemed able to do whatever it is that they wanted, Bassam really liked this part of his job, teaching Iraqi police to work the way the police operate in modern countries, Western countries, on how to treat detainees, how to respect prisoners' human rights, how to stop a riot without brutality, how to exercise authority fairly and without taking bribes. And so in April 2004, when photos from Abu Ghraib prison became public, it was especially disheartening to Bassam. This is not what he believed the Americans were all about. For me as a person, it was just like the shock of my lifetime because it was the total opposite of what we were teaching the Iraqi prison guards on how to treat and deal with the prisoners. And that was um, the, uh, the biggest thing that has turned the most of Iraqis against the Americans. Even those um, Iraqis who were somehow supporting the American were very afraid to show their support to the American. They couldn't show any kind of support to the American anymore. You mean after Abu Ghraib? And here comes the, the loud voice of religious men and the tribal leaders in, in my city. They said that everything that the American has come, came with is just a lie just like their democracy, just like their uh, liberty, just like their freedom of speech. This is what would they do to you if they uh, arrest you, even if it was a, a wrongful arrest or something like that. This is nothing uh, that I was fighting for. This is not the thing that I was willing to see happening again in my country. We have seen and heard too many examples of torture, of abuse of prisoners in, the, in Saddam's time. During this period, it became much harder, Bassam says 
to convince Iraqis that the Americans were doing anything good. The unit that I was working with was doing my, uh, its best, but people were not receiving the message. Give me an example of the kind of thing that would happen in those months. For example, there were small kids who were just uh, around the American convoys. Those kids, for example, sell CDs, like music CDs, movies to the American soldier. And he gives them candy, and he looks at the things that they are selling, and he tries to help them with one dollar or two. And the next day, we hear the, the imams in the mosque saying that, well, the Americans are distributing porn CDs to the young children who were always around their, uh, their convoys, which was really shocking for me because I was there, and I know, I know exactly that the Americans would not do that, and I have not seen any incident that the American would do that. Everything was, uh, was received negatively, at least by the people in my town, in my city. Before long, it became dangerous to be a translator. Early in the occupation, clerics had issued an official statement saying it was okay for Iraqis to work with the Americans, including translators. But a year into the occupation, the mood in the country had changed. Translator friends of Boston's were getting killed. One of his teachers, an assistant professor who trained English interpreters at the University of Mosul, was killed by people who said that she was graduating traitors. One day, Bassem's unit was supposed to process and release a bunch of prisoners who had been transported from Abu Ghraib. Men, they were told, who had been investigated by the Americans and found to have done nothing wrong. So one of those prisoners who were about to be released after spending six months in Abu Ghraib prison, he said, we will kill you one by one. And I asked him, who do you mean by killing one by one? The Americans or us, the policeman or the translator? He said, no, you. And for me, I thought, well, this is a man who is totally angry for being in a prison like for six months and who has been, maybe has been treated badly. And I, I measured out and saying that this is an angry man. He would not be killing anybody after he was released. So things like that was things that I would not be translating, for example. I don't know if I committed a mistake or not. You, you wouldn't tell the Americans he said that he's going to kill you. No, I didn't tell them. Because you just assumed, well, they would just throw him back in prison. Yeah, because I don't like to have anybody, because of me, get back to prison or receive any bad treatment, especially if he was Iraqi. Was it frightening? Well, uh, I, I was not a fright, frightened, uh, frightened. I was surrounded by, uh, like... 20 American soldiers, something like that. But after I left and I sat back home with my wife and I told her, and she said something that made me really frightened, saying that um, those people, especially those like who've been in the prison and who have received bad treatment, will not sit down and feel very happy about they are being released. They will come back trying to get revenge, not necessarily from the Americans, but from anybody whom they suspect has participated in putting them into prison. And in that, in that time, especially in, two, in early 2004, the word the translator itself has become a taboo in the Iraqi society. It's, it, it has become a very scary word, like Sunni religious authorities have suddenly decided that everybody who's working for the American is more uh, is, uh, forgive me for saying this, is worse than the American themselves. If you have the chance to kill a translator or American, kill the translator first. <laughs>
that's such a shocking thing. What did you think? Do you remember where you were standing? You know, like like what what did you think when you heard that? The, the feeling was great because you know you're just in the middle of a 27 million who who are thinking most of them thinking that killing you would be better than killing the Americans. So it is just <laughs> one of those feelings will make you really really scared. Yeah. Uh, you can, you might not imagine that, or maybe your your audience might not imagine that. But speaking English, in a, like you are walking down the street with your friends, and it came up to your mind that now you are going to speak an English word. This is at some point in Iraq, especially in 2005, 2006, has become an enough reason for somebody who do that to get killed, speaking one word or two words in English. In, in, in the street or in the market or in the front of anybody else would be an enough reason for you to get assassinated. A few weeks after the prisoner said that he was going to kill Bassam, Bassam got a threatening phone call, and then a package arrived. It was a message written by, uh, printed by, you know, by a typical printer, by computer. It was, um, the beginning was with some verses from Quran. Then there's this message to me, to, uh, with my full name on it, saying that we have recognized you and identified you as an infidel and a traitor and, hel- and helper of the, tra- uh, the infidels. And uh, if you don't quit your job at once, you would be killed with all your, with all your family. And that was serious because uh, there was a, a CD disc, a disc, a compact disc with the, with the, with the message. Uh, showing the uh, the behaving of uh, a friend of mine. Well, he's a colleague more than a friend. Another translator? Another translator, of course. He's a Christian. Um, when you get a DVD like that, did, did you did you watch the DVD? I watched the first part of it before the beheading started. And uh, that feeling was just undescribable because it is the most scary feeling ever. Seeing it happen to somebody that you know, somebody that you have talked to, somebody that you have had conversation with, is, is the most painful part of it because those monsters were treating him very bad, even that they knew that they will behead, behead him in, in, in minutes, but it was full of insults and full of bad words. They beated him, they spoke to him very badly. Did he speak in the video? Well, uh, he spoke his name in a very low voice, because I think his teeth were broken or something. Uh, Yeah, um, he Uh. spoke his name, and they asked him about the nature of his job, so he said, I'm a traitor. It seems like they told him to to say so. Um, And uh, I I haven't finished the rest of of the... of the film, but uh, I guess you can find it on the internet if you look for it, because Mm -hmm. they have posted like tens and hundreds of those uh, films. And and so around this this time, your family basically uh, kicked you out of the house, right? They didn't want you there because (laughs) it it made things too dangerous for them. They told me, uh, this is your choice. You are not not, uh, young. You are an adult, and you don't want us to die because of a decision that you have taken. So it is not enough for you to quit your job now. It, is, it has become a necessity for you to disappear. Bassam went on the run. He hid in another town. Though when his pregnant wife gave birth to their son, he drove back after curfew to reach her. 
a three-hour drive in the dark, past checkpoints where you had to guess if the checkpoints were Sunni or Shia. When they ask if you're Sunni or Shia, if you give the wrong answer, you're dead. Then he just hid for three months. Before all this running, he had actually gone to the Americans to ask for help and for protection. The Americans offered to let him live on the army base, though without his family. Or they said they would drive him home every night in a military convoy to his family's house. It was, you know, uh, it seems uh, at that point I realized that the Americans, most of them, have not re- uh, realized the nature of their enemy. Uh, uh, it is not a good thing to be seen uh, in an American convoy that drives you to your home. That will be the, uh, the cause of the death of maybe my whole family and my neighbors, too. <laughs> so, so in the end, you wanted to be a bridge between these two cultures, between the Americans and the Iraqis. Yeah. Was it naive to believe that someone could stand in the middle like that? No, it wasn't at all. Because um, most of the misunderstandings, most of the problems that are happening now uh, between the Americans and the normal Iraqi people are due to the lack of full understanding. And in order to achieve that level of full understanding between those totally different group of people, there should be somebody. Our job is building a bridge. If you are a translator, then you build a bridge. And I always say that if something happened, something wrong happened in the process of building that bridge, the first people who, who, who sink into the water are people who are in the bridge trying to reach out for the other side. And mm-hmm. we translators play that role, not only in this war, but in all the wars that happens around the world between nations with different uh, uh, linguistic, uh, with different languages. It always happened like that. If I, if I move away and anybody move away, this would be the best chance for the evil forces, for the terrorism, to control the country and to cut the bridges that we were trying to build. In the end, Bassam felt he had no choice. He left Iraq feeling like he should still be there. Today, Iraqis doing translation for the American forces are kind of an endangered species, a hunted species. The company that hired Bassam to work for the Americans, Titan Corporation, has had 323 of its interpreters killed while on the job, according to the Christian Science Monitor. When the U.S. Army relies on interpreters from outside Iraq, Bassam says, they have trouble with Iraqi dialects and local meanings and customs, and they make all kinds of translating mistakes that no Iraqi would make. Bassam and his wife and his son are now in Europe, in a community where there are a number of Pakistani and Iranian and Iraqi exiles. Back in Iraq, he was constantly having to explain the Americans to people. But in Europe, he's trying very hard to avoid doing that. He specifically tries to avoid telling people that he was an interpreter for the United States in Iraq. Uh, It is not something to be ashamed of. It is not dangerous here to tell people that I was a translator. But it's just I I wanted to avoid any situation where I have to justify why did I did what what I have done in Iraq and I don't want to be asked by people, now you are a friend, a friend, being a friend with the American. Why did they do that? Why did they do this? So I, I just don't want to put myself in a situation like that. I just decided that I'm not really a, with or against the American policy or the things that the, American, the Americans are, are doing in Iraq, and I don't feel like I have to explain anything to anyone. Baby understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel 
When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. You know, sometimes, baby, I'm so carefree. With a joy that's hard to hide And then sometimes again it seems that all I have is worry And then you're bound to see my other side But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood Act three, redemption by proxy. And then when you get right down to it, a reputation is kind of a strange idea. It's this idea about you, about who you really are, that is somehow connected to you, but that is utterly abstract at the same time. You can't touch it. You can't pin it down in any exact way. And it changes depending on what you do. Until the day you die, then your reputation is in the hands of whoever cares enough to step in as your proxy and take charge of the historical record. Tell people who you really were. Eve Abrams has this story. I taught elementary school for 10 years in New York City at this place called the Neighborhood School. It was one of those schools where students call teachers by their first names and where teachers really get to know their students well, their families, their strengths, their dramas. But sometimes one kid stands out. This is a story about one of those kids and his friend and his teacher. Sophia is the teacher and also a friend of mine. Lily was our student years ago. She's 16 now. And Lily's classmate Robert was our student too. But he's dead. So I'll let Lily tell you about him. I really had a hard time telling people who had died for a while because I didn't want to say friend and I didn't want to say best friend because that makes it seem like my best friend. Like, you know what I mean? And anyone can say that they were his best friend. I mean, he lived so close to me, so we'd we'd be like, you know, we'd hang out 24-7. Um, we talked about everything. In our school, everyone was pretty quiet and good, and, like, I don't know, to me, he just seemed like he was just different and he was fun and everyone else was boring. Teachers never liked him. Um, he's probably a little bit rude. Like, he didn't do his homework. That was, like, a big thing because in the neighborhood school, everyone was like, oh, got to do your homework, got to do your homework, or, you know, you're not going to go out for recess and all this stuff and whatever. He'd be, like, never going out for recess because he never did his homework. Robert didn't defer to adults, and other kids were drawn to that. But he was also sort of hapless. He was the kind of kid who, when he cut school, got caught. He got kicked out of middle school, which was always, like, really weird to me because there was so many kids that were so much worse. I mean, I, I like, there was kids that came in that school like once a week at 10 o'clock and like grabbed a girl and left. I had a crush on him like the second I saw him. Fifth grade was like the big year that I really had a big crush on him. It was just like, oh my God, I love you. He one time left me flowers at my door. It was my birthday and knocked on the door and ran away. And so I opened the door, and there was flowers, and I was like, my, like, I was just like, oh, my God, 
oh my god, he loves me like flowers, da, da, da. and so I picked it up, and there was a note, and um, it said, from Robert to Lily, happy birthday, P.S., don't get happy, <laughs> like, as in, like, whatever, don't get happy, don't think I like you because I'm doing this, don't get happy, I was like, but I am happy because you left me flowers. <laughs> I realized it's actually because I liked him so much as a friend and I never really had somebody that was a boy that I liked so much as a friend. Um, so I figured, you know, I must be in love with him or I must, like, have the big... But, you know, it's also, like, I just actually always really liked him um, as a person. That's how Lily saw Robert. Sophia saw him differently. After he was in my class, Robert moved on to Sophia's class right next door. And a lot of times I'd see and hear them out in the hall together. Mostly I'd hear Sophia. She would lecture Robert about homework and effort and attitude, and her voice got really loud and annoyed. While Sophia lectured, Robert just stood there. Rolling his eye. I mean, it was more a physical manifestation, just kind of listening to me, but not really listening, kind of looking off in the distance. Um, head, head was at a tilt, you know, arms crossed, kind of like waiting for the... The, you know, the episode to end. Sophia had a harder time with Robert than I did. He was older by the time she taught him, but his reading wasn't much better, and he still struggled with his schoolwork. He'd also gotten really good at deflecting all of the things that teachers would try, you know, ordering, cajoling, tricking. Sophia would see Robert around the neighborhood after school, hanging out with older boys, doing nothing much, and it frustrated her to no end that this smart, charming kid seemed headed for a lifetime of dead-end jobs and disappointments. At one point, when I was kind of getting near my, my, the end of my rope, I, um, you know, talked to his family about making him stay after school in the classroom just so he can get his homework done. And uh, I think we did it for like a week or two, and, you know, I don't think it was a very successful... It wasn't a, a habit he could um, replicate at home. Incidents between Sophia and Robert piled up, and the year ended badly between them. Someone wrote an obscenity about Sophia on the school wall, up high, where only a tall kid could write, and our principal was convinced it was Robert. He ended up being banned from the big end-of-the-year party. When Robert didn't show up at graduation, other kids at the school, including Lily, blamed Sophia, even though Sophia had nothing to do with it. Not going had been Robert's decision. Mostly, Sophia felt she'd done the best that she could with Robert, but she wasn't sure. She felt bad when she thought about him, bad for not reaching him, bad for having been hard on him. And for the next few years, she dreaded seeing Robert around the neighborhood, especially with other kids she knew, like Lily. And then one day, Sophia heard Robert was dead, stabbed to death for reasons no one knows even today. He had just turned 16 two weeks before. After Robert... Uh, was killed, I had this nightmare. I dreamt that, I don't know, two or three of the girls in that class were really upset with me. And they were they were talking about the time when I had asked Robert to stay after school and work on his homework. One of the girls had accused me of, um, of preventing him from joining a basketball league. And um, 
she said that because I didn't let him do that and because I made him stay after school to work on his homework, he didn't get a chance to make better friends and, and do something that was better for him and more productive. And um, I really felt like, you know, maybe they have something there. If nothing else had happened, Robert would have stayed like that in Sophia's head for years. A kid she always had regrets about, always wished she'd done a better job with. But about six weeks after Robert died, Lily came back to her old elementary school and showed up in Sophia's classroom out of the blue. And she did something none of our students had ever done. I was surprised to see her, of all people, in my room, in my class, visiting me. And... um, Then she said, well, I wanted to give you this, and she handed me a note that she'd written, and then she left. And then when I read the note, I couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe I had to read the letter over again. I keep it in my wallet. I wanted to frame it, but sometimes I feel like I just need to read that letter again, just to remind me. Would you mind getting it out? Sure, I'll read it. Um, Dear Sophia, this is a letter of appreciation to you from me and Rob. Thank you very much for coming to Rob's wake. I know it would have meant so much to him to see how many people showed up. In the past three years, well four years since me and Rob left the neighborhood school, we have been best friends together every day. I just wanted to let you know how much Rob appreciated what you did for him as a teacher. Whenever we would talk about the past... He said that he understood everything you did for him and that he was grateful for it. He showed me that people care for you. That's why sometimes they are harsh. For that reason, I thank you for teaching it to him. Rob always liked when people showed him they cared. He cared for you very much. Hope to see you soon. Lily Torres Lily wrote the note to Sophia on an impulse, while she was grieving. She wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do, or if it was weird, or even if Robert would approve. But before she could talk herself out of it, she sat down at her kitchen counter and wrote it on a pink post-it. I think the thing is, like, I really wanted people to know that he was a really great person. I mean, you know, teachers were just always not liking him and I just maybe thought yeah if maybe even if one teacher that he had knew that he liked them or that you know not to change his reputation with like you know every teacher that he ever had but I was just trying to take a little bit of bad off of his name because I don't think he really deserved any bad at all he was so mature about that whole thing about her and I wasn't at all and I, I wanted, I thought maybe by showing her that, would that she would know that he actually turned out pretty well. He said, um, I'm not mad because I think that she was trying to do the best thing that she could for me. Because we were talking about Sophia. You know, I was just kind of like, you know, she didn't know how to handle you. And he was like, he's like, what are you talking about? She didn't know how to handle me. You know, I was bad and like, she was just trying to like help me. Like, you know, and he said that he was thankful that she took the time out to even care about him even if it was yelling or whatever it was it showed she he said that you know it showed him that she cared Sophia never wrote back to Lily she'd wanted to find the perfect way to thank her but she couldn't decide what to say 
and then she figured too much time had passed. Though Lily doesn't see it that way. It's fine that, you know, if she doesn't write me back or if she does, I don't think it's ever too late. Um, you just never know what people need to know. Until I spoke to her, Lily had no idea how much her note had meant to Sophia. That Sophia kept the note in her wallet, that it had lifted away years of guilt. For Lily, the note was about saving Robert, the part of him that was left in the world. She hadn't realized that it would also rescue Sophia. Eve Abrams, in New York. The program was produced today by Lisa Pollock and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltes, Sarah Koenig, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Adrian Mathewitz, runs our website. Production help from Seth Lynn, Tommy Andres, PJ Vote, and Emily Youssef. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Special thanks today to Dan Efron, Sean Cole, and Dan Calhoun. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Saab, founded by 16 Swedish aircraft engineers who sought to bring the spirit of flight down to earth. Saab, born from jets. Learn more at SaabUSA.com. And support for PRI comes from PBS, featuring their new series inspired by Car Talk, Click and Clacks as the Wrench Turns, premiering Wednesday night on most PBS stations. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, I tried to bring him to my weekly basketball game. I tried. I tried. But it just didn't work out. He didn't understand that he couldn't come out on the court when the grown-ups were playing. And I had to leave the game and take him home. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. It's not what I like. It's just a fond farewell to a friend. You couldn't get things right. PRI Public Radio International.